Uh, let's see. The other thing is we ran out of Reason for God books again. So if you didn't get one yet, we'll have more again next week. But also, if you want to listen to it, get the Audible. You can get that like right now during service if you want to. We get we give you free Wi-Fi. So, and then uh, you can, if you want to download, you can go to Audible. Uh, get the Reason for God by Tim Keller. Uh, it's actually read by Tim Keller. So if you want to know what he sounds like, you'll get to hear him read the book. I always love it when authors read their their books. Like I, I love Malcolm Gladwell, and I buy Malcolm Gladwell books, but I actually will get Audible versions of it because I love listening to him. Anybody who has Malcolm? Okay, I love listening to him read things. I'm like, it's like a bedtime story. I love it. Anybody, anybody uh, read this book called The Martian by Andy Weir? Actually, read. Okay, okay. Now, anybody read the follow-up uh, Artemis? Anybody? Okay, you should listen to that on Audible. Okay, because the person who reads the book, it's Rosario Dawson, if you watch any Marvel stuff. I didn't tell any other service this, because i got time right now. Um, but seriously, she does an excellent job reading this book. It has nothing to do with the message at all. So, uh, <laughs> Reason for God, on Audible, you can get a free 30-day trial for your cheapskate. You can still cancel it and keep the book for free, so there you go. Uh, do that. I don't know what I'm talking about stuff. So, uh, I can't believe nobody... Uh, hey, if you're new, welcome. Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. They are half sheets for the duration of the series, The Reason for God, uh, because in gospel communities, you're having you also read those books then go through another book that comes along with it. And so this is more based upon uh, the messages that I'm giving throughout the series, which go along with the book, but they're different enough that if you read the chapters, you'll get a whole lot more stuff than I'm actually going to talk about that's, that's deeper. And so I would encourage you guys to grab one of these. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on More and Then Events in Uversion, and it'll come up by GPS on your smartphone. You will get sermon notes, questions, announcements, everything that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Uh, this is Romans chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. And it says, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I want to thank you for being a God that your faithfulness is true and that you have spoken good things to us as a people. And I ask that we'd be those who learn to trust in those things that you have spoken and to live that out in our lives that, that makes a difference by how we think and how we feel and what we do. And that by what we do, you would gain great glory. Amen. Have a seat. So I'm going to just give a little background of why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, in, in 20, 2018, uh, we've been focusing really on replanting Element as a church. Uh, for eight plus years, we were in this old car dealership. It was broken down, falling apart day by day. If you ever went to service in the old place and you tried to use the bathroom, you understand intimately what I'm talking about, especially if you actually tried to flush one of those toilets because you never knew if it was going to go down and if it did, if it was going to come back up. You never knew what was going to happen. Uh, we started with 35 people in this room that was just trashed. It was cold cold. It was in the middle of winter, so we had a propane heater shoved in the corner. It was totally legal. That's how we got warm. Uh, 
all the notes and stuff were done on a whiteboard by me with a marker. And if you've ever seen my handwriting or my spelling, you know that was just not a good thing, right? So over the course of years, we steadily grew. And in 2014, we bought a four-acre parcel that was adjacent to where we were we were meeting. And we started this journey called Planting Roots. And Planting Roots was about Element getting to have a permanent home in the Santa Maria Valley. After two years into that journey, God led us in another direction to buy the property we're currently on. Uh, this property needed a lot of work. It still needs a, a lot of work. But the crazy thing is, without buying the original property, without doing planting roots, without going through all the steps that we did, we would not be in a position to buy this facility that, that we did. I don't know where we would have really ended up. And it's really how God always moves. We think we know the beginning from the end and how things are all going to work out, and we are always wrong. It is like our plan Z, but it's still God's plan A because He's sovereign and He stands over everything. And God knew exactly what He was doing. And so what we wanted to do is start looking at a series that built us up in the new space because we noticed I always kept saying things like in six months or two years or five years, we're going to do this or we're going to do that. And I didn't really deal with a lot about today. And it's good to also look at, at today. It's good to look for the future with the vision for that, but also for today. As one of the guys on staff mentioned this to me. And so for 2018, we spent a lot of time trying to build us up together. Uh, not to make us a clique, but to make us more of like a family. We don't want to be inward focused, but outward focused, replanting in our new space. And so we did this by looking at who we are as a community and our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what that means for us to be children of God. This leads to our first series that we had in this new space called Didn't See That Coming. And it's all about the story of the gospel. We handed out booklets. Actually, I think we handed out almost 650 booklets that had short little daily devotions in them. And it was a way for us to recenter on the good news of the gospel, uh, the history changing of of Jesus stepping in time to rescue us. When we finished that, we went into the summer and did a series through the book of Proverbs. We called that counterculture. Uh, not that we're against our culture, but we want to be a people for hope and truth and grace and life. Uh, building a God-honoring culture doesn't really start with angry debates or, or holding angry protests. It starts with the people in our homes and our communities living out the goodness that God calls us to live in. And so now, today, we're going to start a brand new series that will take us all the way into Christmas, and it's going through Tim Keller's book called The Reason for God. You might wonder, well, how does that fit into all that Element has been talking about in 2018 so far? Well, the subtitle of the book is Belief in an Age of Skepticism. Belief in an Age of Skepticism. And so this series is going to give you, if I, if I don't you know, totally tank it, which I can do because I'm good at that, uh, but give you a stronger foundation for your faith and your belief in who God is. Uh, today is my intro. Uh, my intro is just going to take a little portion of the introduction of the book and kind of talk about that the entire time. Uh, if you read through the chapters, I had someone in our gospel community uh, last Wednesday night say to me that they found a couple words in, just in the introduction that they didn't understand, they didn't know what it meant. And I thought, that's awesome. Awesome, because you're learning new words. That's great. And so what happens is when you learn new words, you can ask other people who might know what they are or might understand a concept that you don't get, and we can talk in community to start working these things out with one another. It's really a cool thing that we want to be able to do. Uh, the introduction is literally 15 pages. 15 pages. In my older copy of the book, it's 12 because the writing's a lot smaller. Apparently, they think all of our eyes are getting worse, so they put it bigger. But So 15 pages in, in the new copy. Uh, and today, what I really just want to hit and talk with you guys about is this idea of faith, of faith. When I talk about faith, I mean more than just something like belief. Let's do this podcast sometimes called The White Horse Inn. 
And the White Horse Inn, in this one podcast, they went out and they interviewed people on the street, Christians and non-Christians, and they asked them about their ideas of faith and belief and all that. And what's really interesting is in America, people are using the same idea for both of these things. And I think whether we know it or not, crappy Christian theology has permeated the world. And what I mean by that is for the last few decades, churches have preached verses like Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, completely out of context. They don't talk about what actually comes after that, that how God steps into time in real ways and does these things, and our faith is based upon real-world things that God has done. And so Christians start running around talking about how faith is mere belief in something that's just invisible. And it's not. It's not. Non-Christians will typically say, I can't have faith in something I can't see. It's you know something that, that's not verifiable. Because a lot of Christians have told everyone that faith is believing something you can't see. It's just something that you feel. There is this assumption when religious people go to church, we set our minds aside. We turn our intellect off and our, and our knowledge off and just go with opinion and belief. And this idea that throughout most of our lives we do things with our five senses and with reason, but when we deal with things of God, we shut all of that off and we just go with our hearts and not facts. Most Christians today will tell people that faith is this self-justifying thing. You just have to feel, and if you don't feel enough, we'll just try and feel it more, and then you'll actually start to believe it. Do you know that nowhere in the Bible is faith talked about like that? Not anywhere in the Bible. And again, if I asked people what faith was, most people would say it's belief. But the word that we translate in the Bible as faith is this Greek word called pistis. And it actually means trust. Trust. Faith is not meant to be grounded in some weird nebulous thing that that you're trying to muster up inside of yourself. It is grounded in the one in whom we believe. There is an object of our faith. There is an act of faith. But it comes because of the object of our faith that we actually trust in. And this is essentially what the Reason for God book is going to all be about when you boil it down. Real belief in our current age. How to have it, how to talk about it, how to speak about it in an understandable way. What we have to understand is Christianity and faith in Jesus exploded in a very reasoned society. It's, it's the idea that Jesus lived and died and actually rose from the grave in front of people. That people would be like, that's new. L- look at that, right? This is the center of all Christian claims, that Jesus rose from the grave. And all that Jesus spoke is true because of the resurrection. Faith is meant to arise from the proclamation of the things that Jesus said and did. And I'm not saying that faith doesn't include our feelings, because I think it does. But faith is not just this weird, nebulous bag of feelings. Christopher Hitchens, he's an atheist, died a couple years ago. He used to mock Christians by sarcastically saying, this is my paraphrase of what he said, he says, why don't more ignorant people wander around the desert making up stories about God? Like, Because that's what he assumes. There's all these ignorant people going, what's that? Well, that's a goat. Maybe that goat's kind of like God. Maybe, and just this weird, crazy kind of stuff. What you have to understand is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection took place in a large city in front of multitudes of people. It wasn't hidden. It really couldn't have been more public. The Jews were a people who were always brutally honest about their heroes of the faith. Read through the Old Testament. Is there anybody in there that looks good? Nope. Nobody, right? Because they're brutally honest about it. And those same people now put their lives on the line for something where there is no social, family, political, or economic benefit. They, they bow their knees and say, Jesus is Lord. In a society where saying that could get you killed. And when I talk about faith, I don't mean you have to know everything in the minutest detail about something. There's what, what is called comprehensive knowledge versus apprehensive knowledge. Okay, I'll explain what that is. 
Comprehensive knowledge means you know everything that there is to know about a subject or a thing. Apprehensive knowledge is when you know enough about something to simply trust the truth of something. Here's an example. Anybody here ever fly on an airplane? Okay, anybody here ever not fly on an airplane? Anybody? One. You were the only person all morning. I'm so sorry. You're not missing anything. <laughs> okay, so some people, when they get on a plane, they love to fly. They have lots of faith. There's no fear of being strapped into a metal tube that could plummet out of the sky at any moment. They're like, oh, it's great, I'm good. Other people are you're like, that's exactly why. The other people are scared to death. Like, they, they'll get on a plane, but they white-knuckle it the entire time. Like, oh, my goodness, it could plummet out of the sky. But they still get, get on the plane. In both cases, the object of their faith is the plane. And it's not how much belief they have. It's the reliability of the aircraft to get them somewhere. Now, comprehensive knowledge is someone who would know everything about the aircraft, where it was made, when it was made, who worked on it, who's flying it, all the server, everything in the world you want to know that person would know about the aircraft. But on the other side, you don't need comprehensive knowledge to fly. You need apprehensive knowledge. And you may be someone who's just like, I don't know, I get inside, I strap it on because the sign said so, and we go, my stomach goes, and then we go up, and then we land, and I go, my stomach goes, and we land, and I get off. That may be all that you know, Right? but you have enough apprehension of what it's supposed to do. You get on the plane and you fly. Open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. In the New Testament, what you see is faith is not leaving your reason behind. It's something that your mind apprehends, even if you don't comprehend all the nuances of it. In the Bible, you never see a suspension of facts in order to believe. The scriptures, in the scriptures, faith is based upon fact, eyewitness testimonies, okay? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Open to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Central to the Christian message is not blind belief, but reasonable faith. Luke chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 1. I like hearing it. Okay, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Luke says this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. That means God has made promises, and he was good for his promises. Verse 3. I myself has carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you. Verse 4. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Why? So you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Now, Luke doesn't say, I've studied all the secrets of the universe, and this is how you get happiness. Here's the principles. He says, here's the truth of what God has done in human history. He doesn't say, here's how to become a better you by believing your own truth. He says, the truth has been revealed to us. Acts chapter 1 starts the same way. Uh, Verse 3. After his suffering, he, that's Jesus, presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, at one point, Jesus showed himself to more than 500 people at one time. And if you have a question about it, go ask them. Most of them are still alive. I mean, that is a really ballsy thing to say, to use nobody there to actually saw the thing. Can I say that? (laughs) Okay. Whoops. Anyway, Jesus is alive. He's resurrected. If you're taking notes, here's something you could write down, okay? Christianity is a truth claim about historical events that can be investigated just like any other event of history. Okay? 
Write that down. Christianity is a truth claim about historical events that can be investigated just like any other event of history. And that gets so lost today when we talk about the ideas of faith in Jesus because our divided culture puts like reason and logic on one side and faith, which is kind of defined as believing without evidence, on the other side. Christianity, it is tied to history in a way that is so deep and so profound that all of history centers at the moment of Jesus. Even the way today that we, that we think about time, it still centers back to when Jesus was born. I mean, we used to be BC and AD, now we're CE and BCE, but it's the same thing, right? It still centers around Jesus an historical event of you stepping into time to rescue and save us. The Reformers talked about saving faith that acts out in three parts. He says, they said, first there's this thing called notitia. Notitia is knowledge, knowledge, knowledge about the content of the gospel of Jesus as presented and taught in the scriptures. It's why we always talk about Jesus, that our faith needs an object, and the object will be defined by our knowledge of it, so God must reveal himself so we know who he is. Uh, let me explain just a bit, okay? When people say things like, God is what I feel like he is. Well, that's not God. That could be the pizza you ate last night. It could be the chili. My God is a volatile God. Well, take some Tums. Maybe he'll calm down, right? <laughs> Today, people say this thing is God or that thing is God or everybody goes to heaven or nobody goes to heaven. It's all opinions. But what we need to know, notitia, is what the scriptures speak about. The truth is the scriptures are only about us insofar as they show our need for the redeeming work of Jesus. The scriptures are and point to Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if that's true, don't you think then the scriptures would teach us how to have faith and trust in Jesus? Of course they do. That's what they're all about. John 5, 39 and 40, Jesus says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. He goes, eternal life isn't found in a book. He says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is the truth, and the scriptures are all about him, so we can have real and true knowledge. Second, they talk about this thing called ascensus, which means assenting. Uh, we have intellectual acceptance of the truth about Jesus. We receive it, we stop trying to fight about it or resist it. And thirdly, then it comes out in this thing called Fiducia, and this is their word for faith. This is a personal reliance and trust on Jesus and the good news of what he's done. We trust in Jesus as he has been revealed to us. All of these three things are supposed to go hand in hand, knowledge, assenting, faith, all together, so that it filters down into every aspect of our lives. Because a lot of people say that they believe in God, but it makes no difference in their life. It's supposed to filter down into everything we do, knowing what God has first done for us. It's supposed to filter down into sexuality. I mean, that's a big one in our culture, right? Oh, God's going to tell me what to do with my baby-making parts? Yeah, he actually talks about it. Uh, there are things about diet in there. I mean, it doesn't say anything about MSG. You're welcome, so we can all, yay. I love, I like, uh, money. Uh, God actually thinks that what you have is his gift to you, that he enables you to even make an income. Uh, how about friendships? God cares about who we connect our lives to in meaningful ways. How about our mouths and the things that we say? God cares about the things that we say. Sometimes preachers on a stage should be more careful with the things that they say. I get that, okay? If our, if our faith doesn't filter down into every aspect of our lives, we are told that our faith is useless. Because faith is meant to be practical because Jesus is right and true. And don't get me wrong, information doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. 
But we're told in James 2.19 that demons believe. They know who Jesus is. You know, they probably have better theology than all of us about who Jesus is, but they don't follow. See, there are, there are feelings involved in faith, but faith is reasonable. It is reasonable. And part of that reasonableness is having the right information. Again, why we're doing the Reason for God series. And this is why when we hear the truth, we must be a people who assent to the knowledge of it and begin to live in the truth because our natural reaction when we hear truth is to shut it out and go with what feels good to us rather than what is true. Truth is more than just academic. It is moral. It's that there's a God and and He's in charge and it's not us. And information, until it becomes faith, being practiced outside of ourselves is never going to be transformation. God's truth is what will change us when we live in it and trust Him in faith. I had this philosophy teacher in college who once, he said he always studied the Bible not to find out who really God was, but find ways to mock and belittle God's people. It's not how you study the Bible, by the way. I think there are only two kinds of people who have ever lived throughout human history. And you boil this down, you get rid of the religions and the isms and all of that and whatever. This is the very essence of it. First is people who trust in themselves and their own ability to save and rule over themselves. Uh, this is every religion in the world, and many times even a lot of people who say they believe in Jesus and Christianity. We look for a way to rule over ourselves by own, our own morality. The Bible calls this pride. I'm better, I'm smarter, I'm more enlightened than everybody else. Uh, today, there, there's a group of people in our world who, who kind of feels that way about everybody else. You might have seen these bumper stickers on cars that say, coexist. You might have seen one of those, right? Um, now, what, what they don't understand is they're not really pushing for coexistence. What they're pushing for is co-belief. Uh, a lot of a lot of people in the world actually coexist just fine. Uh, these the coexistence thing is the thing that all roads lead to the same place. There is no real truth. Thinking that sounds very enlightened, while those bumper stickers actually offend people and disrespect every single faith that's out there. We so often think our answers are better than God's revelation, and that makes us prideful and will, in the end, push humanity further and further apart. God's words can be hard to us at times, but what pride does is pride comes in and makes us think that we are smarter than God, that we don't really need to trust Him. Atheists and skeptics have a tremendous amount of faith in the things they cannot prove. No life after death, there is no God, and instead what they do is they trust this three pounds of meat between their ears that God made. It's kind of funny, right? Uh, that, that's the first type of people. And I think many times people who call themselves Christians fall into that as well. Um, I'm going to be righteous. I'm going to be moral. I'm going to be holy. I'm going to work it out myself. The second type of people are those who trust God and his ability to save and rule over us as a gracious God who gives us righteousness as a gift. That's the second type, that despite our many sins, he is still good to us and he wants to be in relationship with us. And we receive that in humble faith, in trusting what he has done. And at the bottom of our lives is always going to be faith in something. How we live is going to be born out of that faith. How we treat others will come down to who we actually believe in and have faith in. And a simple question, if you looked at through all of human history, really, who is more trustworthy than Jesus? I don't think anybody is. Jesus is God in the flesh who came to live, die, and rise from the grave for us. He never sinned, but he also never used that as a way to belittle us as a people who consistently and constantly fail. What instead does he say to us? God says the righteous will live by faith, by trusting me, because what I have done to give righteousness to you. Self-righteous people only trust themselves. And if you are someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, my question for you today is, who do you trust more? Do you trust you or Jesus? And if you say you, my second question is, how's that worked out for you? 
right? Because if you look at the stupid decisions a lot of us make in our lives, it's because we trust ourselves and know what God has actually said. You know, at, at the bottom of our lives is faith in something. And the reason that we are going through the Reason for God book is that it essentially is what Keller calls these distillations. It's, it's bringing down into comprehensive levels a lot of conversations that he, have, he has had with people about doubt and faith over the years. It, it is a very respectful book. I hope the messages that we talk about in here are going to be very respectful as well. Uh, Keller says he recommends that, that Christians and skeptics alike both wrestle with the logical arguments that actually stand against their position and that skeptics would look at many things they believe as blind faith and the ways that they're very hard to justify some of these things, and Christians would do the same thing as well. And he says, if both sides will actually do that, no matter where they end up, we'll be able to speak of our position with greater clarity, humility, and grace with one another. We will actually end up having a greater understanding and respect for those who do not agree with us. Keller writes this, he says, Believers and non-believers will rise. This happens when each side has learned to represent the other's arguments in its strongest and most positive form. Did you get that? strongest and most positive. We live in a culture inundated by politics. And how do they represent the other's arguments? In the weakest and dumbest form. That's how we're taught to do it. But he says strongest form, the most positive form. And then you'll be able to have a dialogue because you're respecting one another. Faith is important. How we see and understand faith is important. How we speak about our faith is important. Because we want this series to be fun, but engaging as well, to grow us all into better trust in the person of Jesus. And instead of just being people who quote that old hymn, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives in my heart, we'd be able to say that, but we'd also hopefully grow to where we can talk about knowing he lives because there's historical evidence for it as well. Okay? So let me go back and round out this idea where I started so you get the big idea with faith and all that. If you look in the English language with ideas of faith, belief, and trust in modern English, it's totally different than how the Greeks would have used it. Like today we have this thing called faith, right? And this faith, it conjures up this image of confidence confidence as opposed to fear and doubt. It's often defined by our feelings as much as anything else. That's why most teaching on faith seems to center around eradicating your fears and your doubts and your negative thoughts. It's also why when people say, oh, you got to have faith, it means just think positively, right? you got to have faith, the faith, the faith. Oh, you got to have faith, the faith, the faith. Baby! Okay. Going karaoke. Okay, so... And then you have this word called belief, right? Belief conjures up an idea of intellectual assent to something. We say we believe in something as long as we think it's probably true. And since our beliefs are thought to exist primarily between our ears, you're not puzzled when someone says they believe something like UFOs or Bigfoot or evolution or creation or even Jesus, but they live as if they don't. Because for most of us, beliefs are intellectual. Acting upon them becomes optional. You see this now, a lot of people talk about faith in Jesus. Like, well, tell people the Jesus story. We'll say, oh, do you believe it? Yeah, I believe it. Well, you got fire insurance. Now you get to go to heaven, no matter what. You're... It's like, really? Is, is, is that what that looks like? Then you have this word called trust. In contrast to our use of faith and belief, when we use the word trust, it almost always carries the assumption that there's going to be some type of corresponding uh, action to that. If you trust a person, it's supposed to show up in your response. How about this? All of you right now are sitting down in these chairs in this room. Okay, You had trust that when you sat down in these chairs, they would hold you up. In our old place with our old brown chairs, that might not have happened. But in these, these are better chairs, right? So you sit down in them and you're like, boom. And what you naturally sit down in a chair because you have trust that it's going to hold you up. What if? 
What if we became a people who has such trust in Jesus that we, our faith is naturally born out that way? We live out in our lives in such a way that the faith is so natural that we trust him in all that we do because he is simply that good? Think of what our lives would look like. Think of what, what faith in Jesus and people understand what faith would look like if that's how we trusted Jesus. Like we are a people who would just sit and rest in him. Those three words have all these distinctive differences in the English language. But you know, surprise, when you look at the Greek word in the New Testament, every single one of those comes out of that same root word. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This will actually go on and show how God did things in the real world, in time, in historical ways about that faith. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. John 14, verse 1, out of the NIV says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. The ESV says the word believe. But there you have each of those words. In one instance, it's a noun. In two, it's a verb. What it shows you is the Bible knows nothing of all these sharp distinctions we are making between faith and belief and trust. In the Bible, they not only overlap, but they're synonymous with each other. To the writers of Scripture, all of our modern distinctions about these things of faith, belief, and trust would seem really strange. And this means when rightly applied and understood, it doesn't matter how many doubts we have. What it matters is who our trust is in. Because our trust is in the one who came to rescue us. Our faith is in Christ. And whether you have all kinds of faith and all kinds of comprehensive knowledge and you've been to Bible college, you can answer you know, what superlapsarianism is and tell people why it's so important to Nobody, and, and you know, all these great arguments for all this stuff, or you're someone who has just said, you know, you're in a place like, I'm going to trust Jesus because I know He rescued and saved me. It doesn't matter where you are, it's God is the one who brings us home because our trust and our faith is in Him and Him alone. Faith is not a skill you master, it is not an impenetrable shield that you put up to keep you out of life's hardships and trials, it's not a magic potion that removes every mess. What faith does is it takes us to a place where we trust God and begin to live out our lives and it results in these things in our lives called righteousness. And it is God's righteousness in the end that is given to us. It is His story. It is His plan. Faith is not even about us. Our faith and trust is about Him and who He has said that He is. And if you have never done it, I would invite you today and during the course of this series that no matter how big or small your faith is, that you would place it in the one who came to rescue you that you would trust Jesus with your life. You would trust the one who stepped into time in real and practical ways in history to rescue and save us, to bring us back into relationship with God again. Because what we have to understand is this whole idea of how we even talk about communion goes to us to understand that God made promises and God was faithful to his promises, that God was true and trustworthy. And this is why in a place like communion, we break a cracker because it reminds us of what Jesus did. His body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice because it reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. That Jesus did something in history, in the world, to rescue and save us, to bring us back to God again. Because we had this thing that the scriptures call sin, and it separated us from God and from one another, and we kept rebelling against him. And Jesus came to take care of that, to live a righteous life, to give his righteousness to us in history so that we could be a people who trust Him because He is true and good for His promises. 
And this morning, I invite you to take communion and remember the historicity of Jesus and the goodness of Him and the righteousness He has given to us that He came into real time to rescue us in real ways. The band's going to come up. They're scattered around somewhere. And as they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons in the back and elders. If you need prayer, if you're in a place today where you have maybe a whole lot of doubts and you thought that you couldn't have doubts and yet still trust Jesus. I want you to understand they'd love to pray with you about that because you can have doubts. And in the midst of those doubts, you can still trust Jesus because having faith in Him is not having, is not, not having doubts. Having faith in Him is saying, I may not have all the answers right now. I don't have comprehensive knowledge of everything, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to live my life out because you have spoken truth into me. And you have called me to live in new ways. Because our lives, in the end, are not even about ourselves. They're about Him and what He has done. And His great and good rescue of us. And so, we as a people respond in humble, trusting faith. And begin to live out our lives differently in response to what He has done. Uh, there's offering boxes next to every door. We give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's always a response. Uh, there's food outside. I invite you to grab something to eat. Maybe take some of these uh, sermon notes. Uh, if you're not in the gospel community and don't plan to be, we'll take some of those and at least begin to talk to a couple people about what's, what's in those. You know, what is the difference in your life between uh, you know, faith and belief and trust and where do you kind of make those distinctions? Or what in your life do you have comprehensive knowledge versus apprehensive knowledge of? You know, when you, when you really have trust in, in something, you know, what does it result like? You know, talk about the difference of sitting in a chair versus actually trusting Jesus in a really hard situation in your life and, and how those two things that just kind of whoop, right? Because I get it. Sometimes things are hard and trusting God to come through in the end. I mean, seriously, even when we bought this place, you know, Element being in, in this space now, I mean, we didn't know what was going on and what he was going to do, but he always does. He always does. And we are the ones who run around so lost all the time. And yet when we take a look back at what he's doing, he is always faithful. He is always good. He is always trustworthy. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us as a people what it means to really and simply trust you. That when you, when you speak in the scriptures of this childlike faith, it's this childlike trust in who you are. As children implicitly will trust their parents, you call us to have a faith like that in you, that implicitly trusts you for being good and full of grace to your children. And so I ask that you would teach us that no matter what comes our way, we would walk by faith in you that you would come and have us begin to see what you have done in real ways to rescue us. That as we would, would apprehend that, not even comprehend everything you've done, but just apprehend the goodness of who you are, that how we live out in faith will show the trust that we have in you. Father, thank you for being bigger than our faith for being bigger than all the, all the heartfelt emotion that, that we can muster up. <laughs> and being a God who is good and rescues us in the state that we are. And that our salvation is not even based upon how much faith we muster up, but it's based upon the object of our faith, which is you. 
And so, for Father, for those of us in this room with a mustard seed of faith or, you know, a faith the size of a well full of water, that we would all be a people who simply remember that our salvation is found in you and you alone because of what you have done to rescue us. So teach us to place ourselves in your hands because you are the one who rescues and saves. Teach us to live this out in real ways in our lives that brings you great, great glory and that we can be a people who actually live in joy because you have us and that we would trust you in all things because you are good. And we ask these things in your son's good name. Amen.